Assalamu alaikum brothers and sisters, I'm Sister B and welcome to Islamic Audio Bites. We'll be continuing to listen to the Crusades, the Mongol Scourge from islamiclegacy.org. Let's listen. Chapter 4. Humiliation. Words cannot capture the extent of the suffering inflicted on the Muslim nation at the hands of the Mongol horde. Truly, such savagery and cruelty defies imagination. Ibn Athir, the great scholar and historian, had the misfortune of living through these times. He writes, For several years I put off reporting this event. I found it terrifying and felt revulsion at recounting it, and therefore hesitated again and again. Who would find it easy to describe the ruin of Islam and the Muslims? Oh, would that my mother had never borne me, that I had died before, and that I were forgotten. Though so many friends urged me to chronicle these events, I still waited. Eventually, I came to see that it was no use not complying. The report consists of a story of a terrible, gigantic disaster, such as had never happened before, and which struck the whole world, though the Muslims above all. If anyone were to say that at no time since the creation of man by Allah had the world experienced anything like it, he would only be telling the truth. They killed women, men, and children, ripped open the bodies of the pregnant, and slaughtered the unborn. Truly, we belong to Allah and shall return to Him. Only with Him is strength and power. Ibn Athir is not exaggerating. Bahara, Samarkand, Khurasan, Nishapur, Mur, Tashkent, and the list of cities devastated by the Mongols goes on. These cities of Islam, each with its own sea of living, breathing human beings, were turned into graveyards. The number of people that died in each of these cities conveys the scale of the mass slaughter. 747,000 at Nishapur. 1.3 million in Mur. 1.6 million in Herat, and so on. But these numbers don't capture the deeper story. The horrors of this period of history lie in the acts of savagery and torture that the Mongols inflicted on the Muslim nation. Ibn Athir describes the last moments of the city of Bukhara, situated in present-day Uzbekistan. The following day, a deputation of imams and the city's leading figures came out to pay homage to the Mongol leader, Genghis Khan. This prince rode into the city to inspect it, and passing in front of the great mosque, went inside, on horseback. He asked whether this was the palace of the sultan, but was told it was the house of God. He set one foot on the floor, then climbed into the pulpit, and then, in a loud voice, said, the harvests have been done, so feed our horses. People went out to fetch some fodder for the animals, 
The boxes containing the copies of the Koran were carried by the Mongols to serve as cases for the fodder for the animals, whilst the Korans were being trampled by the horses. The Mongols then put their large leather bottles of wine in the middle of the mosque and called in some singers and dancing girls from the city to perform for them. As they enjoyed themselves with these debauched acts, the imams and fakis had to obey them in each and every order they gave and care for their horses. After an hour or two, Genghis Khan left the city for a large place where the inhabitants of Bukhara used to pray together. He sat on a chair and asked for the rich people from within the multitude. Eighty persons were pointed to him. He asked them to come closer and said to them, You must know that you made terrible mistakes and that the leaders of this people are the worst criminals of all. If you ask me what is the foundation for what I am saying, I will answer you that I am the wrath of God and that if you were not guilty, God would not have sent me on your heads. And then he added that they, the Mongols, won't ask them to deliver their wealth on this earth because they will find it, but to tell them where it is buried. And then he had all the treasures delivered to him. Once the inhabitants had all come out of Bukhara, order was given for the people to be divided between the Mongol troops. It was a terrible day. We could only hear the cries of the men, women, and children who were separated forever. The Mongols began by raping the women in front of everybody who had nothing to offer but their tears. Many preferred to die rather than to watch these horrors. Amongst them were the Qadi Badruddin and Imam Rukanuddin and his son, who, witnessing the dishonor of their wives, fought back and died fighting. Then the rich men were tortured until they indicated where they had hidden their wealth, and then the Mongols set the city on fire. Built with wood, it burned to ashes, except the great mosque and other constructions built with stones. The horror of Bukhara was repeated across the Muslim world. In Mur, the Mongols toyed with the Muslim captives. They promised the people and the governor they would be spared. The governor and his entourage were to be received with honor and dignity by the Mongol general Tolwi. But when they arrived, he had them all strangled. The population was asked to gather their belongings and leave the city to a location four days' march away. When they got there... They saw the general sitting on a golden chair in the midst of a vast plain. Little did they know this very piece of land was to be their grave. Seven hundred thousand Muslims perished that day. In Nishapur, the Mongols beheaded the Muslim men and women. The heads were used to erect two pyramids of worship, one of male skulls and the other of female skulls. The terror of the Mongols had reached such levels that the whole population of one large village simply stood in line, waiting to be slaughtered, one by one, by a lone Mongol. Genghis Khan returned to Mongolia in 1222, leaving behind a trail of destruction that encompassed the modern-day states of Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Persia, Afghanistan, and western Pakistan. Almost three million Muslims were massacred in this single campaign. According to Ibn Kathir, not even one one-hundredth of the population survived the onslaught.
The Christian kings of the West were elated. If an alliance could be struck with the Mongols, then the Muslims could be crushed once and for all by a simultaneous attack from the East and the West. But fortunately for the Muslim Umar, Genghis Khan never returned. The historical record simply states that he died in 1227 after an illness. The Muslim Umar had been given a temporary reprieve, but the Seventh Crusade of 1249 was yet to come, and as soon as the Mongols regained stability, they would return as well. Chapter 5 The Christian-Mongol Alliance In 1251, only two years after the Seventh Crusade, the grandson of Genghis Khan resumed hostilities with the Muslims. Hulagu Khan resolved to bring the Khalifa in Baghdad to its knees and subjugate all Muslim lands. This task he assigned to a new general, Kitbuga. This warrior would write a new tale of death and destruction in the annals of Muslim history. Whilst the leaders of the Muslim Umar remained embroiled in their petty conflicts, now that the Crusades had been unsuccessful in wiping Islam off the map, Pope Innocent IV was pursuing an alliance with the Mongols, hoping to crush Islam from the east. The Pope had come to know that Christian influence was very powerful at all levels of Mongol society and government. In fact, Christianity was revered alongside the more traditional animist beliefs. A 5th century branch of Christianity called Nestorianism had spread to China and the Mongols of Central Asia, all the way to the south of India. In fact, the wives of some key Mongol leaders were Christians. In particular, Dotuz Katon, the wife of Hulagu Khan, was known for her ferocious hatred of Islam. To please her, new churches were built every day throughout the Mongol realm. The Pope was very well aware of the potential role the wives could play, and they worked to stimulate their zeal to their advantage. Only six years before Hulagu Khan began his murderous rampage across the Muslim world, the Pope sent Giovanni di Carpini to explore a formal alliance with the Mongols against Islam. Baghdad, the symbol of power and dominance of the Muslim world, the capital of the Abbasid Empire and home of the Khalifa. Founded in 762 by Al-Mansur, over a period of 500 years, Baghdad was the center of education and culture in the world. During this golden age of Islamic civilization, Baghdad attracted scholars from all over the Muslim world and beyond. While Europe festered in the Dark Ages, Baghdad shone brightly with the light of its intellectual and cultural achievements. But by 1258... Baghdad was only a shadow of its former self. The Khalifa, Mustansir Billah, had distanced himself from the world and its troubles, seeking refuge in the opulence and frivolity of a decadent life. He delegated power to his ministers while he pursued the traveling singers and dancers that frequently visited his palace. 
When on occasion he would step out of his palace, he would dress with opulence, and his face would be covered by a dark veil. The princes who came to pay homage to him were not admitted into his presence. They could only kiss a piece of black silk cloth suspended from the door of the palace. The cloth was placed such that they had to prostrate to kiss it. By such means, the Khalifa sought to imitate the ritual of the kissing of the black stone in the Kaaba. It is no wonder, then, that the Khalifa was surrounded by men of questionable character. Of these, his vizier, Ibn al-Alkami, was most cunning and evil in his plots. While the Khalifa was busy frittering away the hours, his vizier wrote letters to Hulagu, pledging his personal loyalty and encouraging him to attack Baghdad. However, the army of Baghdad was a cause for concern. The cavalry alone numbered 120,000 men. Despite the imminent threat of total annihilation by the Mongols, Ibn al-Aqami persuaded the Khalifa to reduce the size of the army and contribute the savings in the form of a tribute to keep the Mongols away. The Turkish general Suleiman Shah was livid with rage. If he does not take the most rigorous measures, we will soon see the enemy at the doors of Baghdad, which will then suffer the fate of other cities. Neither the old nor the young, neither poor nor rich, will escape slaughter, and our women will fall in the hands of these barbarians. If we can raise an army, we can go and surprise the Mongols, and even if we are beaten, at least we will die with honor." When the Khalifa heard the words of Suleiman Shah, he came to his senses and supported the idea of raising an army. But the vizier, Ibn al-Alkami, intercepted the officer charged with implementing the mission and made him act as slowly as possible, delaying the measures from taking effect. The Mongols arrived on the 30th of January, 1258. While the Abbasid army engaged the Mongols in battle, the Khalifa retreated into his palace. The scholar and historian Ibn Kathir writes, Mongols surrounded the home of the Khalifa, pointing their arrows at it until a girl slave was hurt. Her name was Arafa. This slave was dancing for the Khalifa. She was one of his most favored slaves. The Khalifa was in shock. He picked up the arrows that pierced the little girl's body. The arrow had a message written on it which read, when Allah wants something to happen, Allah deprives the wise people from their ability to think. The Khalifa read the message and ordered heavier drapes on the windows so that the dancing slaves would be better concealed. The siege lasted three days after which Baghdad surrendered under the strong influence of the Shiite vizier Ibn al-Alkami. The Mongols promised that the Khalifa would retain his position and the inhabitants would be unharmed. The army was ordered to assemble outside the city. They were then exterminated. The Khalifa was then summoned and asked to hand over his wealth. The Khalifa brought out a few thousand costumes, gold dinars, and some precious stones. Hulagu handed them to his officers and said, This petty sum can easily be found, and I give it to my servants. What I want are the treasures hidden underground, which I must have. The Khalifa led him to the palace where he ripped out the floor, revealing oceans of gold hidden underneath. 
wealth that he could have invested in the defenses of the city, at least for his own preservation, if not the people. But his blind lust for wealth knew no bounds. Hulagu forced a Khalifa to eat some of his own gold. He was then rolled up in his own luxurious carpet and trampled to death by Mongol horses. From his palace emerged 700 women and slave girls and a thousand eunuchs to serve them. Hulagu had them all executed. The Muslim population of Baghdad waited for their fate to be decided. Ibn al-Alqami went to the camp of Hulagu and then returned to the city of Baghdad, announcing to the nobles and officials to come out to attend a wedding between the daughter of Hulagu and the Khalifa. As they came out, they were slaughtered. Then each Mongol officer was assigned a quarter of the city to slay. For 40 days, the Mongols slaughtered the Muslim population. Between 800,000 and 1 million men, women and children were killed. Only the Christian population and their churches were spared. Hulagu had ordered that no Mongol was to enter a Christian home to cause them any harm. The Grand Library of Baghdad housed millions of handwritten books on every topic of knowledge known to man. It was the only library of its kind in the world. The Mongols threw out the books into the river. They were used as bridges for men and horses. The ink from the books was said to have turned the river black. Centuries of investment in knowledge and learning were irretrievably lost that day. Hulagu finally left the city when the stench of rotting corpses became too much to bear. Many left with regret, believing there were still objects of value to be looted. The Christian world rejoiced at the news of the fall of Baghdad. Christendom hailed Hulagu and his wife as the new Constantine and Helena, God's instruments for vengeance on the enemies of Christ. In May 1260, when the Christian draftsman drew the triumph of the cross, the cross was held by Constantine and Helena, but their features were those of Hulagu and his wife. About Hulagu, a Christian historian said, He was a great spirit and a great soul. He was very knowledgeable. True, he spilled much blood, but only the blood of the wicked, not that of the good and honest people. He preferred Christians to infidels. The same historian further commented, he made Muslims wash pigs with soap every Saturday and feed these pigs with almonds and dates every night. He forced the Muslims to eat pork. The subsequent devastation of Syria and the massacre of its population was largely due to its Ayyubid sultan, al-Nazir. But unfortunately for the Muslims of Syria, the state of their leadership was similar to Baghdad. On the night of the Mongol invasion of Syria, the Ayyubid Sultan al-Nazir was camped in the Barza not far from Damascus with his army. Bedouins, Persians, Kurds, and Turks, fleeing the Mongols, streamed into the city, eager to join the Syrian army and march out against the Mongols. But in the shadows, whispering into al-Nazir's ear, was his vizier, Zain al-Din al-Hafizi. His words struck fear into the Sultan's heart. Hulagu was too strong. The Syrian army could not resist him. Surrender was the only option. But al-Nazir was weak and remained undecided. He wasted those critical hours crafting lines of poetry, thus sealing the fate of hundreds of thousands of Muslims.
It so happened that a Mamluk by the name of Baybars al-Bunduk Dari and 3,000 Egyptian Mamluks from the Bahri Regiment were in Syria at the time. They had fled from Egypt after Qutuz, a Mamluk from the palace guard, had taken over the Sultanate. Baybars tried in earnest to convince al-Nazir to go to war, but the evil whisperings of the vizier had taken root in his heart. Baybars beat the vizier, cursing him for seeking the destruction of the whole Muslim nation. The vizier reported the incident to the sultan, who decided to act in favor of his vizier. Baybars became increasingly desperate. He gathered his mamluks together and plotted to kill the sultan before it was too late. But at the last moment, his plans failed, and the mamluks had to escape back to Egypt. The Mongols raped and pillaged Damascus. The city gave in without a fight. What was unique about this battle was that it was led by three Christians, the Mongol general Kitbuga, the king of Armenia, and the crusader count of Antioch. They rode through the city forcing the Muslim population to bow to the cross. The crusader count had Christian mass sung in the mosque of the Umayyad. Wine was scattered on the walls of other mosques along with fresh pork and the excrement of the soldiers. Although Aleppo was bravely defended, it eventually gave in. 100,000 young girls and children were taken as slaves while the rest of the population was exterminated. The king of Armenia set fire to the main mosque with his own hands. The Mongols continued the rape and pillage of the Muslim cities such as Nablus, Gaza, and the fortress of Harim. The Muslim Umar was paralyzed with terror. Only Egypt lay between the Mongols and complete domination of the Muslim world. In the course of its history, Islam has never come so close to extinction as it did in 1260 CE. But almost six and a half centuries earlier, the prophet of Islam, the final messenger to humanity, Muhammad, peace be upon him, made a plea to Allah the Almighty not to let an external enemy destroy and uproot the religion of Islam. Allah, the Most High, replied that this would never happen, even if humanity united from all corners of the earth to do so. The promise of Allah is true and is never broken. That is it for the Crusades, the Mongol Scourge. Hope you're enjoying the story. Can I ask that you leave a review and rating wherever you listen and to share the podcast with your family and friends. We are on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and we're also on YouTube as a voiceover channel. Do join our Islamic Audio Bytes community on Facebook and Instagram and follow me on Twitter. We've also got a website. Please do check it out at islamicaudiobytes.com. If you'd like to contact me directly, please do so at sisterb007 at gmail.com. As always, hope your day is full of goodness. Assalamu alaikum.